Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke, the first chapter of Luke's Gospel. A book that we, Lord willing, will uh, be spending no small amount of time in, in the days to come. And uh, I hope that you're eagerly anticipating as we begin to study this wonderful, wonderful account of the life of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 1, this morning we will read verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. One sentence here in verses 1 through 4, one sentence in the original language anyway, spread out across four verses, and yet this contains so much, this says so much and tells us so much about what Luke is about to do, about what Luke teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the value of the scriptures themselves and about this particular gospel account of the life of Christ. And it is with great joy that we come to this this morning because we get to spend uh, no short amount of time learning about the life and ministry on earth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Really, in one sense, all of the scriptures are about Jesus in the sense that you uh, find your way connected to everything in the Bible, from everything in the Bible, to some element of what Jesus Christ has done or who he is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and yet we learn in Colossians chapter 1 that in the beginning that all things were created through Jesus Christ and for him. We learn in John 1 that he was the word who was in the beginning with God. It is not as if Jesus only lately came onto the scene. And it's not as if he was not doing things throughout the Old Testament. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read, for example, that when Isaiah saw the vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he saw him, this son of God, and beheld his glory and spoke these things about him. Jesus is not simply someone who was only around when he came to earth. In fact, also, we have learned much about Jesus Christ by studying his letters or the letters of his apostles to the churches. And, of course, he even continued to speak and to minister all the way through the end of the Bible, through the book of Revelation, which is none other than the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ that he gave to give to his bondservants. He had truth that was revealed by him and about him. So the whole Bible is connected with Jesus Christ in one way or another. 
But of course, at the foundation of understanding who he is and what he's done, there is no greater place to go than to understand what he said about himself directly and what he did when he was in the world. And God, by his grace, has given us four accounts of this. The gospel according to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. These four gospel accounts give us uh, accounts of the life of Christ that come at it from somewhat different angles, the Gospel of John in particular, but all tell us about the person and the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they show us his glory and they teach us things that we need to know if we're going to trust in him and if we're going to worship him and if we're going to be like him. So the Gospel of Luke is no exception to this. Uh, Luke is perhaps the most fitting for us in our own particular context if we want to learn about Jesus Christ as a church and as a church that primarily consists of those who are not from among the Jewish race, but rather those who come from a, a background of the Gentiles, of the nations, because this is the kind of person that Luke was writing to. This is, will become evident as we go throughout the book in large part. But largely what we have in the book of Luke is uh, a message that is given for those who have come to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who aren't necessarily from the same Old Testament background as the Jews would have been. But who still need some edification in their faith. They want to know more. They want to know exact details about what Jesus did in his life. And though they don't doubt what he did, and though they know things about him, and though they know enough to have believed the gospel, and even to have grown to no small degree, there still is additional information and exact information that would be helpful to them as they grow in their faith. That's what this was for when Luke wrote to, as he points out in verse 3, Theophilus who, as he says here, can, by reading the Gospel of Luke, know the exact truth about the things that he has been taught. So when he takes this book and begins to read, he can build upon his faith and he can grow by learning about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is with us. And therefore, this Gospel is not simply one to try to convince us that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, though if you are not in that position of believing that, this gospel should convince you. But this is for those of us also who have come to place our faith in Christ, but need to know the truth about Jesus even more thoroughly. And I trust that that's what's going to happen as we go through this. Now we're going to look at this introductory section, get a little bit of background about who the author is, where he came from why he is qualified to write this work. We're going to learn a little bit about what's in the book, although we won't major on that uh, so much because we'll see that in great detail as we go through. And then we're going to look at why Luke decided that he needed to write this book in the first place. What was it that made him write this book? And what is the significance of him thinking that he should do that? Why does it matter that Luke thought that he should do this? Why does he explain this even in this passage? And what does this say for us about the blessings of studying this book ourselves? And so we are going to look at it kind of in that order. But just to give you an overall picture of what this passage is telling us, um, it tells us that Luke provides an accurate and appropriate or fitting account of the life of Jesus Christ so that we can understand the gospel and so that we can be built up in our faith. Very simple, isn't it? Luke provides an accurate and appropriate account of the life of Jesus Christ so that we can understand the gospel and be built up in our faith. I want to begin then by looking for a few moments at the identity of the author. 
the identity of the author. Now, he is never actually named in the book. Luke is never actually named in this particular book. He is named elsewhere in scripture, as we'll see. But it was the universal, unquestioned testimony of the early church from the earliest times that Luke was the author, not only of this book, but as we'll see, of the book of Acts as well. And this will make sense in light of the things that, uh, that we go through here shortly. Uh, but just a few truths about this man, Luke. He was foundationally a believer in Jesus Christ. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't write this from the outside perspective of someone who says all of this happened, but I don't actually believe it. It's very clear that he counts himself among the faithful. He is writing this for a reason. He believes the gospel message, but he is not just uh, that. He is uh, much more. He has many more things in terms of roles with regard to the gospel. He is, secondly, the author of Luke and Acts, the author of both Luke and Acts. You notice in verse 3, he says, I'm going to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. If you look over with me in Acts chapter 1, just to get one verse, uh, you'll notice this very interesting note at the very beginning of the book. It says, the first account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. What that implies is a number of different things. Uh, one of which is that even when Jesus has passed off the scene into heaven in the book of Acts, has ascended to heaven and uh, remains there for the entirety of the book, he still is working and teaching through the ministry of his apostles after his departure. Sometimes people will minimize the words of those who are not Jesus Christ being written in the scripture, such as saying things like, well, that's just Paul's words, not the words of Jesus. Or that's just what Peter said, that's not what Jesus said. And of course, Luke says, no, no, uh, Jesus began to do and teach what he did and taught while he was on the earth, but then the rest of it he did through his apostles after his departure. In fact, he even said, it's better for you apostles if I go away, then the Holy Spirit can come. When he comes, he's going to bring to remembrance all the things that I said to you. And the implication is then they go and they tell them to other people. So the words of the apostles, when they're speaking on behalf of Christ, are no less important, no less valid, no less true than those of Jesus himself. Because they are speaking the things that the Spirit of God has revealed that were given to the Spirit by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is with the Gospel of Luke. When Luke writes, he is writing with the same authority and accuracy and inspiration as the very words of Jesus Christ himself. So that even when he is not directly quoting Jesus, he is telling things that are absolutely true. Now these two books, Luke and Acts, really make up one uh, compendium, one just larger unit that starts all the way back at the beginning, uh, even before John the Baptist was conceived, and takes it all the way through the time of Paul's fourth missionary journey when he is in prison in Rome, his first Roman imprisonment, a period of some 60 plus years. The book of Acts 
starts right in the middle of that when the Lord Jesus is in his last moments on earth before he ascends into heaven all, and then goes all the way through the founding of the church. But the book of Luke uh, carries all the way from, again, the time, the coming of both Jesus and John the Baptist, the revelation of their birth to their parents, all the way up through the crucifixion and the resurrection and then the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, roughly 30 years or so in each account. And of course, the two books are divided uh, not just because they cover you know, the life of Christ and then after the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also because uh, there's only so much room in a book. I don't know if you've ever carried around one of those uh, gigantic books that has, you know, a thousand pages or more. They're pretty unwieldy, but you can at least do it. Well, not so during the customary way of writing at this time. They wouldn't have had the codex format that we have where you open it up and the pages flip out. They would have been writing on scrolls that would have to be unrolled and they would be generally only of a certain size. And when you come to the book of Luke, you are encountering a book that is longer than any other and that takes up the maximum size that would fit within one scroll. And therefore, it is appropriate that it would be divided into two books because physically speaking, it had to. And then from the perspective of actually aligning these things with a nice, neat division, it works out that way as well in terms of the themes covered within each book. And so Luke really here is the part of, is the first part of two. Nonetheless, it is the part that we're going to focus on as that which covers the life of Christ when he was on the earth. So Luke is the author of both of these books, the author of Luke and Acts. This, by the way, uh, makes him, when you count the total number of words and the volume of what is written, this makes Luke the most prolific author in the entire New Testament. The two volumes that he wrote give us more material than anyone else, even the Apostle Paul, of whom he was, by the way, a very close companion. And that is the third truth about this author, about Luke, which is that he is a fellow worker of Paul, of the Apostle Paul, a traveling companion often uh, of the Apostle Paul. You say, how do you know this? Well, there are some places in the epistles where it mentions this. But uh, if you look over with me in the book of Acts, you're going to see something very interesting that might, uh, that might skip by you on a first read. Acts chapter 16. Turn with me there if you would. Uh, in Acts 16, while you're turning there, a little background. Paul uh, the Apostle Paul, who has, of course, been converted to Christ out of being a Pharisee and being hostile to Christianity. Uh, Paul has been converted to Christ. He spent some years ministering sort of locally to where he was before, uh, before going, specifically being sent out by the church in Antioch in Acts 13 to go to the Gentiles, to go to the nations and to take the gospel out as far as it could go. So they go on a first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, and then they return. The Jerusalem Council takes place to sort of solve a dispute about Jewish customs and the place of those among the Gentiles in Acts 15. And at the end of that chapter, uh, he has a dispute with Barnabas, his, his uh, fellow worker on the first journey, and they end up splitting up. And Paul goes out with Silas and takes him on his ministry. And in Acts 16, he is traveling through. He picks up Timothy, Acts 16, 1. Uh, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, Acts 16, 3, and he took him and circumcised him in, uh, because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
Now, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Uh, He would, by the way, come back to Asia. This is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, uh, on his third missionary journey. But right now, God was telling him, go somewhere else. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately, and what's the next word? We. Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia. You say, what do you mean? We, you're talking about Paul. You're talking about all of the people that he was with and all the things that he was doing. Who is we? Well, this is the author of the book now, including himself in this account. And what you find is that Luke accompanied Paul when he went over to Macedonia and he traveled to the leading city in Macedonia to Philippi where the church of the Philippians was founded. And we read about this account in the rest of Acts chapter 16. Now you can read through the book of Acts and you you can look for the word we and us and what you'll notice is that he appears to have stayed in Philippi when Paul moved on. And may have stayed there for quite some time because when you get to Acts chapter 20, uh, Paul is coming back on the return voyage, not of his second missionary journey, but of his third, which had already included three years in Ephesus. So at this point, uh, we're talking about several years later, probably at least four or five years later. And uh, in Acts 20... It says in verse 4, he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, by Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. But these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So what he did is uh, Paul goes back from Corinth after he's been there a couple times before. He goes up through Philippi and then Luke hops on board with him on the ship and heads back as they're going toward Jerusalem. And it seems that he went all the way back there with him because Acts 21, 17 and 18 says, We arrived in Jerusalem and the brethren received us gladly. So Luke then uh, had been dropped off in Philippi. We don't know what he did in those next few years, but he may have stayed there in the Philippian church. And uh, one way or another, he was back there again a few years later when Paul picked him up on his way back to Jerusalem before he uh, ended up in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey with a great gift from the Gentiles to the Jews who were Christians to give them some relief from their famine and from their poverty that they were going through, their suffering. Um, eventually, after some undetermined period of time, he mentions himself again in Acts 27 and 28, traveling by ship and even by land to some degree with Paul on the last phase of his journey to Rome for his first Roman imprisonment. For Acts 27:1, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy. And then he is there all the way through Acts 28. It's clear that the writer was with Paul for some of the events of the book. And then it is clear, of course, that this is the same one that wrote the gospel 
of Luke. So what we have here is a companion of Paul. Uh, Just a few more notes on this point. In Philemon, verse 24, which was written at the same time and sent at the same time uh, as the book of Colossians to a man named Philemon in Colossae, uh, Paul calls Luke one of his fellow workers. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, at the end of Paul's life, he mentions to Timothy, only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. So this is a man who had been through a lot with Paul. Uh, He had spent, it seems, um, years with him, if not at least several months, but likely many years with him. He had been um, part of seeing what Paul did in ministry. He would have been very, very familiar with the gospel and with the accounts of what Scripture said, uh, or with the accounts of what Jesus had done. And this would have been a, a very qualified man to write this message. Uh, he is then a companion of the Apostle Paul. This one more thing about this is that it, it gives him a little bit of uh, a little bit more credibility in terms of when he writes his gospel. Matthew was an apostle. John was an apostle. Mark was not an apostle, but he had spent quite a bit of time ministering the gospel, and then was connected with the apostle Peter. And similarly, Luke, though not being an apostle himself had spent quite a bit of time ministering alongside one and was a very close companion of the Apostle Paul. In fact, if anything, if you were to get the closest thing to a gospel if Paul would have written it, though the style is very different, um, nonetheless, you would have it in the gospel according to Luke. So, Luke is uh, this fellow worker of Paul. He is also, number four, a beloved physician. A physician. Uh, this uh, This is said in Colossians 4, 14, he is referred to, it says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. So in some form or another, he was a physician. Uh, He was in medicine. He would have cared for the bodies, for the physical needs of people. Uh, He is, in addition to these things, as we'll see, uh, just very briefly, two more things. He is a robust theologian. He is a robust theologian. The books that we read of Luke and Acts our narrative accounts. They do tell a story, but they don't just tell a story. They don't just comment on events and say, this happened, this happened, this happened. But they are arranged intentionally, and they, there are things that are drawn out, and they are structured in a particular way. Details are emphasized along the way that are meant to show us things that are very significant for people like Theophilus and for people like us. He understood the theology of Christ. He understood the theology of the gospel and he didn't just say, well, let me tell you the story, but interwoven into the story are highlights and details of the things that tell us about the doctrines that we need to understand. The work of Christ and the person of Christ and who he is and what it means to respond to him properly. All of these things are there. And then what we'll find as well as we go through is that Luke is a careful historian giving very precise details on a number of different matters. He is interested in showing that these things really did happen. We'll see more on that in just a moment. What does the book talk about? Well, it says here in uh, the beginning of the book, in the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 1, he says, uh, a lot of people have undertaken to compile an account of what? Verse 1, the things accomplished among us. 
the things accomplished among us, or fulfilled, or having been completed, or finished, things that have been done. And what this is talking about in particular are things that have been done by God, fulfilled by God, brought about by God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God is the one who accomplished them. The realm in which he did them is in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the earth when he sent him into the world to do this. Uh, He says many have undertaken, by the way, to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Uh, If we are trying to understand who Theophilus is, this is perhaps the most compelling place to find out that he was actually someone who already believed the gospel because he includes himself in the us. Luke and Theophilus are part of this same group. Now, we consider that the events took place in a very large geographic area, uh, so it can't refer to one location. Well, it took place here in the city that we're in. And so if it can't refer to a geographic location when it means among us, it must refer to a particular group of people, namely... Um, even though those who were spread out over the course of the empire were, over the Roman Empire were uh, split up geographically, they were nonetheless part of the same community, namely the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says the things accomplished among us, he is including Theophilus in this group of who it is that they were accomplished among, bringing him in and saying, this is what was done among us believers. Now, Luke says these are things that were accomplished, events, matters of history. And this tells us that the things that Luke writes about are historical realities. And this is really important for us to understand the nature not only of what he's writing about, but also of the Christian religion in general. These are not things that merely were taught. Luke doesn't say, let me come and summarize for you all of the lessons of Christianity and its moral teachings or its principles of living. He doesn't say that. He says, these are things that have been done. They happened. They're historical events. Near the end of the book, a disciple named Cleopas is walking on the road with the risen Christ, not knowing that it is Jesus because his eyes were kept from seeing him and understanding who he was. And he asked Jesus this question, uh, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? These are historical events. These are things that took place. When Paul wrote about the events of what Christ has done and their interpretation and their significance in his epistles, and when the other apostles did the same, they were basing it not on the fact that God kind of gave this general theology and message, and here are some things that are true over against the principles and the theology of these other religions. He is basing them instead on historical events that took place. And Luke is making the claim that these things happened. We can't come to Christianity and say, well, this is our religion. This is what works for us. These principles are good, and therefore we're going to follow them. You can't do that. Christianity doesn't work that way. It is grounded in historical realities. If these things were not true, then all of those principles should be thrown out the window because they are on the basis of what has been said about what happened, what took place. But because they took place, as they've been recorded here in this gospel as well as the others, they mean everything for us. You can't get around them. You can't say, well, this is not the religion that I like. These are not the principles that I like. You know, I don't really care for the teaching of Jesus because I think I like some other people better. Or I only like some of what he said and I like some of what other people said better or alongside of that as well. 
well, you can't really do that. Because Jesus taught in the context of all of the events that he did. And if the events happened that were listed in the gospel according to Luke and the other gospels, then they have significance that includes Jesus' message being the one that trumps all the rest. And so Luke is referring to what happened. He is recording what happened. And there is, therefore, a critical factual basis to the Christian faith that sets it apart from so many other ways of living and from the other religions that people would be drawn toward. And verse 2 tells us about this. It tells us about the things that were accomplished among us and how these things got to Luke and got to Theophilus and got to the other Christians in the first place. And there are three key statements or three key components of this in verse 2. First of all, they were handed down. Secondly, they are those who were eyewitnesses, and then there are those who are servants of the word. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Now we start with this first phrase, they were handed down to us. What is they? These things that were accomplished among us. So all the historical events that took place in the life of Jesus, they were handed down. Not that you can take an event, you know, and put it in your hand and pass it to somebody else as if it's some sort of a tangible thing. But the fact that these happened, the story about them, the recording of them as history was handed down, passed along. Just like you tell your friend something and then they pass it along to someone else. Now, you might hear this and say, well, you know, when I was in school, I played this little game and it's called the telephone game. And what we did with that is we started with something, we told it to a bunch of people. And by the time we got to the end of that, it was a totally mangled message. And everyone thought it was hilarious because it had nothing to do with what was originally given. And people looking to attack the scriptures would come to something like this and say, well, of course, this is what happened with the Bible. And they say silly things like it's been translated so many times as if you couldn't translate it from the originals. Or it's been copied so many times as if you couldn't make an accurate copy and it's not possible. And they would attack it on this point as well to say that it has been handed down. And because it was handed down, well, surely something must have been lost along the way. Well, this is not your friendly neighborhood telephone game where people whisper something one time that they've never heard before to their neighbor and just hope that it gets around and ends up in the right place. This is an entirely different type of things being handed down. In addition to the fact that there would have been many accounts written or written pieces or written records of various types, uh, it was also true that the Jews were used to getting, and the people who believed in the scriptures were used to getting their messages in this way by being handed down, whether by written or even by oral communication. So we have in Acts 6.14, this word is used to describe the law of Moses, and it says the customs Moses handed down to us. This refers in that case to uh, writing that was written down, to messages that were written. But in Jude 3, uh, Jude refers to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, handed down to the saints. And the message of that whole book is don't let people mess it up. The implication is you, you heard it the right way and it's been handed down accurately. Just don't let someone come in and attack it. In the book of 1 Corinthians alone, the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians three times that there was something he delivered to them. And he is calling upon them in that letter to retain that practice, to remember what he had told them, not by way of writing, but by simply speaking to them. Handing down something was 
in these days, an entirely reliable practice. A lot of this about Jesus may have been passed along orally. There would have been writings to be sure, but and Luke was the only, uh, was far from the only written account, as we'll see in verse 1. But uh, a lot of this would have been preserved by passing it along by word of mouth or by memory that people could pass along to each other. And that's okay. Uh, in those days, with many people who were unable to read or to write, in fact, in fact, the vast majority of the population would have been, in the technical sense, illiterate, unable to read or to write, uh, they would have been much more attuned to being able to remember things and to pass them along accurately by way of memory and oral tradition. The Old Testament scriptures themselves and other documents were written down, but the skill that people had in those days for retention and passing things down orally rather than having to depend upon writing was very high. And not only that, but of course, when you have a matter of such import as the gospel itself in the life of Christ, all the more attention would have been paid by those who were making sure to remember this. We even understand that this is possible and capable in our own day. Uh, think to yourself, how many memory verses do you know that you learned a long time ago? How many songs can you sing word for word? Things that you haven't heard since your childhood. We use songs and we use poems and we use repetition to learn all kinds of things. Things that we can come up with. And though there is uh, less emphasis on that today perhaps than ever, nonetheless it is still within the realm of our capacity to do this. Well, all the more of people who would have been dependent upon it. All of this, of course, is in addition to the fact that Jesus promised the apostles that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance the things that he had said when he was with them. And that there would have been a supernatural ability to have the truth of God given to them even after Jesus was gone so that they would remember and be able to accurately pass this along to others. So that when Luke got the information, he is not getting the result of a long line of erroneous copies or people who can't remember things, but rather a consistent and a, a very meaty tradition of things that would have been passed down from people who would know. And those people are listed here in verse 2. Those who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Eyewitnesses is a vital part of the gospel testimony. Once again, this is not just someone telling stories, but these were people observing things that they had actually seen. They had actually uh, observed them. This is what John says in 1 John. He begins his letter in 1 John 1. What, we from the, uh, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It is true that we as believers today do not need to see anything to believe the gospel. We believe on the basis of what we hear. But the foundation of what we believe is built upon people who saw, who touched, who heard directly the word of life and the word, the son of God, Jesus Christ. These eyewitnesses would have included certainly apostles, but also as we go through this, we'll see that Luke had information from other people, including none other than Mary, who treasured up certain things in her heart and kept them 
and would have been able to pass them along, whether directly to Luke at some point or at least in a way where they would have been coming to him accurately. Beyond this, these people who passed this along were servants of the word. They were servants of the word. This refers to a helper or an assistant, uh, someone who does this and often in a subordinate role. And in this case, that's what this is. People who saw the word of God as more important than themselves. They were about preserving that. We learned about the Apostle Paul this morning in Sunday school and in 2 Timothy. His greatest concern, even as he's suffering and about to die, is how can the word of God be preserved? How can this legacy be passed on? How can the truth continue? And so it was with these people, these servants of the word. Their, their goal was to preserve and to hold fast the truth and to pass it along to other people. And they saw themselves as servants, not just of a person, but of an actual set of content that needed to be preserved. They were servants of this message about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that leads us to think about what it was specifically that was part of that word and what it was that he says in verse 1, was accomplished among us? What were the things God did? And what was the content of the message that was communicated about what God did? And we can just sum this up uh, by calling it the word of the Lord Jesus. The word of the Lord Jesus. So this is, uh, this is the subject of the book. Broadly speaking, it is the things that God has accomplished among us. More specifically, what has God accomplished? Well, it is the entire message or word about Jesus Christ. Uh, the life of of Jesus Christ, the historical events, the observation of those events, the facts of his life. And so we have in this word of the Lord Jesus, the events of his life and ministry, the events of his life and ministry, uh, including the lead up to his birth, the lead up to his forerunner, John the Baptist's birth, and the preparation for Jesus for his ministry. And then his ministry in Galilee, the area where he grew up. The area, uh, the, the ministry of Jesus along the way to Jerusalem to go to the cross. And then the ministry and the words and the life of Jesus in the last week of his life as he was in Jerusalem preparing to be crucified. And as he went to the cross and died as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. And then as he rose from the grave and demonstrated this, as Luke says in Acts 1, by many convincing proofs. These are the events of his life and ministry that he wrote about. He also, in this, uh, the word of the Lord Jesus consists of the message of his gospel. The message of his gospel. What is the good news about Jesus Christ? So it is the events, but it is the significance of those events. It is, what does this mean? The good news, the announcement, the proclamation of the good news that comes on the basis of what Jesus did and who he is. And then we learn about the response of his people. The response of his people in a twofold sense. The, uh, the people that were his by, uh, by virtue of birth, by virtue of nationality. The Jewish people, what are the response that they had to him? As we'll find in the Gospel of Luke, it was not so favorable. But then on the other hand, the response of those who would be his people, which are those who respond in faith. Which largely comes from those who are unexpected. The Gentiles, or the outcasts, or the lowly, or the great sinners, or even those of high status, but people from all over that would not be expected to be those who would be the ones that respond. And yet, these are his people who respond. And then, um, in addition to these, the word of the Lord Jesus continued through the ministry of his apostles. And this is not so much in the gospel according to Luke, rather it is in uh, the book of Acts, 
But nonetheless, we see here the foundation of this being laid, that the word of the Lord Jesus involved the ministry of the apostles, and he trained them along the way and taught them these things so that they would be ready when he was gone to preach them. Well, that is what the message is about. But at the end of the day, it isn't just the fact that that's there that caused this to be here and why we need the book. But uh, Luke tells us some things about the value of this book when he explains the reasons that he wrote this. And this is what we're going to consider thirdly. Uh, Not just the message of the book, not just uh, what he talked about in terms of who he is, but the reasons for his writing. What are the reasons for Luke's writing? He begins in verse 1 and says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. He simply says the existence of other accounts prompted him to do this. The existence of other accounts. There is a precedent. Many have undertaken to do this. It's as if he's saying, you know, this is kind of a thing that people are doing. And it doesn't mean that just anybody should uh, write a gospel account. Uh, As we'll see, Luke is uniquely qualified to do this. But this is kind of the start of his explanation. Look, people are starting to write down the things that Jesus did. And since this is something that's taking place, you know, it's kind of got the wheels turning a little bit. Maybe this is something that I should do. This got me thinking. Um, Another reason for writing this is the preservation of gospel truth. Uh, The preservation of gospel truth. Writing these accounts down is in keeping with the practice of passing down the truth from the beginning. Uh, People are trying to compile accounts of these things. And so there's a recognition that we need to do more than simply passing this along orally. Not because these accounts are inaccurate, but because we're trying to organize them. And yes, there is a need. The farther away you get from the people who directly saw these things, there is great benefit to have them written down, as we ourselves can see today. So the preservation of gospel truth, the preservation of gospel truth. And of course, Luke is very confident in his sources about this. Verse 2, he refers to those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He is saying these are people that are trustworthy and I'm taking their trustworthy truth and I'm writing it down on these pages so that now when we read it, we will have it. Uh, But there is uh, maybe a more direct reason why Luke felt compelled to write this. And that is Luke's particular qualifications. Luke's particular qualifications. Now, we read in verse 1, he's not the only one to attempt this. Uh, He has all the information that was passed down. But it is Luke himself who has something special that maybe other people don't have that makes him say, I think I should do this. Which is that Luke has a thorough knowledge of everything that took place. He has a thorough knowledge. He says in verse 3, it seemed fitting for me as well. Now, some of your versions will render this as uh, it seemed fitting to me or something to that effect. And I think that's a little bit more of the idea of what he's going for. He doesn't say that other people out there were thinking, you know, it seems like, Luke, you're the one. It seems fitting for you to do this. Although I think people would have recognized that if you asked me. But that's not really what he's saying. He's saying it seemed fitting to me. In my mind, it seemed appropriate to do this. That's the idea. And not just in the sense of permission, but in the sense of what is best. And he's looking at these other accounts, and he's saying people are trying to do this. He gets the idea, and then he says, you know, I'm pretty knowledgeable about this stuff. And, you know, I've been around for all of these things from the beginning, and 
maybe I've worked with Paul and I've been on along the way on these things and I know the gospel and I believe this and I've got these connections. You know, I think, I think it would be really good for me to do this. Um, some people might view this as presumptuous, but of course Luke is just recognizing here the stewardship that he has. He's looking at the opportunity that he has for ministry and he is looking at this stewardship. He's saying, I possess this truth and I possess this knowledge and I'm kind of in a unique place where I can do this and other people might not be able to. And so I'm going to do it. I'm going to serve God and serve Christ and serve the gospel and serve the church by taking advantage of this opportunity that I have to do this. And this, of course, would have come with no small difficulty. Writing a letter like this, or rather a book like this, would have been a great undertaking. It would have involved uh, cost. This is not as simple as just typing something into a word processor and, you know, uh, sending it out in a PDF onto the internet. It's not the same thing as just printing something out. And uh, this wouldn't have been very easy to do. This would have been a long time. It would have been a great expense to have a book written. And yet Luke decided to do this anyway, and he did it very carefully. He was qualified, and he made the decision to do it. And in addition to um, being a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul, of course, his qualifications are stated here. He says, I have investigated everything carefully from the beginning, or I have followed everything carefully from the beginning. Now, the idea here is not so much that he knew nothing and went back and trace everything down to the source like an investigative reporter. Because he didn't necessarily need to do that. It says that he has followed everything carefully from the beginning. And this is a little bit like the difference between someone who goes to college and is going to write a research paper on something and spends a few months uh, sorting this out and going to the sources and interviewing people. That could lead to quite a bit of credibility. But Luke actually is kind of saying, I've been studying this subject for decades, for a long time. I've been studying this for, well, at least from the time when he uh, met the Apostle Paul. But he's been along for the ride. He's not just a, a third-party, outside, investigative reporter. He's actually an old-timer. He's actually someone who has been involved and intimately acquainted. That's the idea of the word when it says he's followed everything carefully from the beginning. He has been with this and he knows what people have said and he's heard it over and over and over again and he knows the truth. And if somebody made a claim that was wrong, he would be able to say no because I've heard Peter and I've heard Paul and I've heard Mark and I've heard Silas and I've heard uh, Timothy and they've said all this and I, and I have this sorted out and refined. I, I know these things. He is, again, uniquely qualified to do this by virtue of the fact that he is immensely familiar with the material. And so the Gospel of Luke is not something that he had to study for, though perhaps he could have consulted other sources in the process of writing this. But it's something that he knew, and he knew well, and he was well qualified to write. But even that doesn't mean necessarily that he would have gone ahead with it, because there is an audience in mind. And that is the other reason that he writes. He writes in light of Theophilus's particular need, the particular need of Theophilus. He refers to him, this person here, as most excellent Theophilus. Um, Theophilus is a title, or this most excellent, rather, is used to uh, refer, in, at least in the rest of the New Testament, only as an honorable address to Roman governors. However, 
That's not the only way that this was used in extra-biblical literature at the time. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he was in a position like that or even in a, a role of uh, some type of governmental authority or some kind of high societal status, but uh, there is a decent chance that something of that is true. Theophilus, interestingly, refers to someone who is a friend or even someone who loves God. He is spoken of here in the New Testament only in this place and in Acts chapter 1, but he is the recipient of these. And uh, he says, I'm going to write it out for you in consecutive order. To write it out for you in consecutive order so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, just a clarification here. When he says consecutive order, what we'll find as we go through the Gospel of Luke is that it isn't necessarily that he's saying I'm writing it out for you in chronological order. Because there are some things that aren't necessarily that way. What he's saying is, I'm laying it out for you orderly, in an order that makes sense. And the sections are, in fact, that way. They progress from one major component of the life of Jesus Christ to the other. But he's simply saying, I'm not just going to give you a hodgepodge about the life of Christ. I'm going to lay it out where you get the whole thing. And when you read it, you can make sense of his life in a way that otherwise might be difficult to wrap your mind around. It's going to help him solidify some things. And that's what he says. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. There is a kind of certainty that he wants him to have. He's already heard this message. He already has evidently believed this message. And he isn't even saying that you've gotten wrong information. He's just saying this is going to give you even better vision. This is going to give you even more understanding. It's like putting the glasses on or it's like being able to actually sit down and, and sort everything out in a proper order so that all the pieces together make perfect sense. Theophilus then needs to know the exact truth about the things he had been taught. The name that he has indicates he's most likely a Gentile. He uh, may have found himself during this time, we could perhaps only speculate about this point, but by the time that this would have been written, um, likely during or shortly after Paul's first Roman imprisonment in the early 60s AD, um, there would have been a lot of hostility going on between the Jews and Gentiles. Um, there would have been persecution by the Jewish unbelieving people toward the Christian church, which would largely have consisted of Gentiles in those days and a lot of that is recorded in the book of Acts and someone like Theophilus who would have been a believer from a background outside of that may have had some pressure upon him may have been a little bit uncomfortable there may have been questions about where does all of this fit where do we as people who are not part of this covenant nation fit in with the plan of God are we really part of this is this really the message are we supposed to believe this this isn't even what we came to naturally this is what we've uh, we've joined ourselves with in some other way is this really for us and the book of luke shows us in no uncertain terms that the gospel yes indeed is for people just like theophilus and just like you and me many of us have grown up in homes where we learned about the gospel or the bible from our birth or uh, through our childhood, it was something of a heritage. Many may not, but either way, we find ourselves in a place where we uh, are not part of that particular nation, or we may find ourselves as people who in one way or another would not be expected to believe the gospel, and we say, "What is this really for us? And Luke wants to show us 
what kind of people exactly that Jesus came to save and how to respond. In addition to this, it's vital for us to understand the exact truth about what we have been taught. Um, You know, it is just always popular, it seems, to want to shrink down the gospel to the most core basic elements and to not want to have any lines of distinction or division about anything, to not have any comprehensive knowledge about anything to do with the Bible, but just to minimize and to minimize and to minimize. And this is always done under the guise of unity, under the guise of not being legalistic, under the guise of loving God rather than just loving truth or being obsessed with doctrine and those kinds of things. Well, if this is what Jesus wanted, and this is what, if this is true, then Luke should have just written about three verses that talked about that. But he didn't. He says, I'm going to write you 24 chapters of Luke and 28 chapters of Acts so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. It is not dishonoring to the intent of Scripture or the message and gospel of Jesus Christ to try to know the exact truth about him. In fact, that is what we ought to do. This should be what we're constantly trying to do, constantly trying to know more of Jesus Christ and know about him. And that doesn't mean that we just look and we say, oh, Jesus, I love you, though we should. And it doesn't mean that we just say we have a simple childish faith that knows nothing and cares about nothing beyond merely a basic understanding of who Jesus is or what he did. We never move away from the basics, but we solidify our understanding. We fill it out. We flesh it out. And we do what he says in verse 4. We learn the exact truth about the things that we have been taught. And this is part of loving Jesus Christ. This is what makes us those who are recipients of his word those who trust him, those who value him because we say, you know, I want to know everything that he did. I want to know everything he said. I want to understand what he said to this man and that man and what he said to this person and this woman and this child. I want to know all about him and I want to know what he thought and what he talked about and what he did. This is the great privilege that we have and what a great and exciting thrill it is to be able to embark upon learning about all of the many things that the Lord Jesus did. I hope that you are as excited about it as I am, and I hope that you're eagerly anticipating being able to know our Lord more and more thoroughly through this study. Let's pray together as we close this morning. Father, we do thank you that you have given us such a magnificent book to study uh, about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we honor him in the way that we submit to his truth and the way that we see and uh, know his love. Uh, You have said in your word that it's your desire that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And we ask that you would help us to see and to trust him in more and more detailed, precise, and earnest ways through the study of his life on earth. And we pray that he would be glorified and that that would bring honor and glory to your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.